These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Today's episode is going to be a bit different from regular episodes. It's also going to be much, much longer. This is the 50th episode, and as a celebration, I'm going to do what I said I would not be doing at the start of my series on Hammurabi. I'm going to read you the whole of Hammurabi's Code of Laws, throwing in a bit of commentary whenever I feel like. If this sounds like the most boring thing ever, feel free to skip this episode. Next week will be a return to normal as we look at the successor of Hammurabi, Samsu Ilana, and the decline of the old Babylonian period. Now, I've discussed the law code in parts throughout this now nine-episode series on Hammurabi and his empire. But for people who might be new to the show, or if you forgot, Hammurabi's law code is not a code of laws in the exact sense that we understand it today. He didn't sit down and invent 282 new laws out of nothing. Rather, he collected a group of legal decisions that had already been decided on various cases into a reasonably comprehensive collection that could be easily referenced by any literate citizen of Babylon. Some number of these legal decisions were Hammurabi's own judgments on cases made earlier in his reign, and some percentage of them may have been invented on the spot or altered in certain details. And so, this could be thought of as Hammurabi's collection of judicial precedents more than Hammurabi's code of laws, but that isn't quite as catchy. Furthermore, it doesn't appear that these laws were absolute or universally enforced. The episode Hammurabi's Medicine and Justice provides a few details for how the court system worked, but fundamentally these were guidelines for the judges. As the specifics of any particular case would necessarily diverge from these example cases, it was expected that the judges would reason from the case found in the code and apply the principles of justice and ethics that were implicit in each case to render a verdict on a particular dispute. In fact, the frequency with which some of the harsher punishments were handed out is something of an open question. While my own belief is that the code was followed in general, including in the matter of capital punishment, there are many other reputable scholars who think differently, and it is an open question in the study of ancient Babylon. The physical code was a large black stone, about seven and a half feet tall, carved with a picture of Hammurabi as lawgiver at the top, followed by clear Akkadian cuneiform in small, neat rows. This stone currently sits in the Louvre in Paris, and is in remarkably good shape aside from one chunk that was scraped off by a later king who may have intended to make his own improvements, a section which must be reconstructed by other surviving fragments of the text. A picture of the stone Stella is on the post for today's episode over at oldeststories.net. I should also mention that the Code of Hammurabi is not the oldest surviving law code in human history, though it is often claimed as such. Ur-Namu of the Ur dynasty and Lipit-Ishtar of Larsa were both covered in previous episodes, and even they were preceded by Urukagina of Lagash, the oldest known human lawgiver, though we don't have Urukagina's actual law code, just reports on some of his reforms. Hammurabi's code features a prologue, approximately 282 laws, then an epilogue, and I intend to read the whole of it here, 
in translation. Some of the laws are damaged and will need to be summarized rather than quoted or skipped over altogether, and a few versions of the text have a bit more or less laws based on how exactly they reconstruct the damaged sections, but for the most part I will be faithfully reading the words of King Hammurabi himself, combining the translations of Martha T. Roth and Robert Francis Harper. I've included a link to the latter in the show notes if anyone wants to read along. The work begins by invoking the gods. When the august god Anu, king of the Anunnaki deities, and the lord Enlil, lord of heaven and earth, who determines the destinies of the land, allotted supreme power over all the peoples to the god Marduk, the firstborn son of the god Ea, exalted him among the Igigi deities, named the city of Babylon with its august name, and made it supreme within the regions of the world, and established for him within it eternal kingship, whose foundations are as fixed as heaven and earth. At that time, the gods Anu and Enlil, for the enhancement of the well-being of the people, named me by my name, Hammurabi, the pious prince who venerates the gods, to make justice prevail in the land, to abolish the wicked and the evil, to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak, to rise like the sun god Shamash over all humankind, to illuminate the land." So already, right at the very beginning of time, the gods ordained that Babylon should become the supreme city of the world for all time, and Hammurabi was selected during the creation of existence to be the great and just king of this city. Divine right of kings is well established already by this time, and it will persist as a guiding principle for human society for another 3,000 years following this very unsubtle declaration. I, Hammurabi the shepherd, selected by the god Enlil, he who heaps high abundance and plenty, who perfects every possible thing for the city Nippur, the city known as Band of Heaven and Earth, the pious provider of the Akur Temple, the capable king, the restorer of the city of Eridu, the purifier of the rites of the Ibazu Temple, the onslaught of the four regions of the world, who magnifies the reputation of the city Babylon, who gladdens the heart of his divine lord Marduk, whose days are devoted to the Esegil Temple, the seat of royalty, he whom the god Sin created enricher of the city of Ur, humble and talented, who provides the abundance of the Agishnuna temple. What are Hammurabi's very first and proudest qualifications? He supports the holiest temples in the holiest cities of Mesopotamia, even putting the spiritual center of the world, Nippur, and what they believe to be the world's oldest city, Eridu, above Babylon. Discerning king, obedient to the god Shamash, the mighty one, who establishes the foundations of the city of Sippar, who drapes the sacred building of the goddess Aja with greenery, who made famous the temple of Ababar, which is akin to the abode of heaven, the warrior, who shows mercy to the city of Larsa, who renews the Ababar temple for the god Shamash, his ally the Lord who revitalizes the city of Uruk, who provides abundant waters for its people, who raises high the summit of the Aana temple, who heaps up bountiful produce for the gods Anu and Ishtar, the protecting canopy of the land, who gathers together the scattered peoples of the city of Isin, who supplies abundance for the temple of Agalma, 
dragon among kings, beloved brother of the god Zababa, founder of the settlement of Kish, who surrounds the Emertusag temple with splendor, who arranges the great rites for the goddess Ishtar, who takes charge of the temple of her Sag Kalama, the enemy ensnaring Thronet, whose companion, the god Era, has allowed him to obtain his heart's desire, who enlarges the city of Kutu, who augments everything for the Emeslam temple, the fierce wild bull who gores the enemy, beloved of the god Tutu, the one who makes the city of Borsippa exult, the pious one who does not fail his duties to the Azida temple, the dwelling of the god of kings. The one who is steeped in wisdom, who enlarges the cultivated area of the city of Dilbat, who heaps up the storage bins for the mighty god Urash, the lord, worthy recipient of the scepter and crown bestowed upon him by the wise goddess Marna, who devised the plans of the city of Kesh, who provides the pure food offerings for the goddess Nintu, the judicious one, the noble one, who allots pasturage and watering place for the cities of Lagash and Gursu, who provides plentiful food offerings to the Aninu temple, who seizes the enemies beloved of the goddess Ishtar, the able one, who perfects the oracles of the city of Zabala, who gladdens the heart of the goddess Ishtar. The pure prince, whose prayers the god Adad acknowledges, appeaser of the heart of the god Adad, the hero in the city of Karkara, who installs the proper appointments throughout the Galgal temple. The king who gives life to the city of Adab, who organizes the Emma Temple. Lord of Kings, peerless warrior, who granted life to the city of Mashkan Shapir, who gives waters of abundance to the Emeslam Temple. Wise one, the organizer, he who's mastered all wisdom, who shelters the people of the city of Maldium in the face of annihilation, who founds their settlements in abundance, who decreed eternal, pure food offerings for the gods Enki and Damkina, who magnify his kingship leader of kings, who subdues the settlements along the Euphrates River by the oracular command of the god Dagan, his creator, who showed mercy to the people of the cities of Mari and Tutel, the pious prince who brightens the countenance of the god Tishpak, who provides pure feasts for the goddess Ninazu, who sustains his people in crisis, who secures their foundation in peace in the midst of the city of Babylon." Shepherd of the people, whose deeds are pleasing to the goddess Ishtar, who establishes Ishtar in the Aolmesh temple, in the midst of the city of Akkad, who proclaims truth, who guides the population properly, who restores its benevolent protective spirit to the city of Asher, who quells the rebellious, the king who proclaimed the rites for the goddess Ishtar in the city of Nineveh, in the Emesmus temple. The pious one, who prays ceaselessly for the great gods, Sion of Sumula'el, mighty heir of Sinmubalit, eternal seed of royalty, mighty king, solar disk of the city of Babylon, who spreads light over the lands of Sumer and Akkad, king who makes the four regions obedient, favored by the goddess Ishtar, am I. What is the takeaway from this very long sentence? Yes. There were no periods anywhere in that. Three things are happening at once. He's listing cities that, following his great conquests, are annexed or vassalized by Babylon. 
Additionally, he's listing and praising the principal god of each city, a critical aspect of both his own personal faith and public diplomacy, acknowledging that in conquering these cities, he assumes a duty to each of these very many gods. But it's okay. Because with each god and with each city, we get to hear about what a fantastic king Hammurabi is, so we can be confident in his rule. When the god Marduk commanded me to provide just ways for the people of the land in order to attain appropriate behavior, I established truth and justice as the declaration of the land. I enhanced the well-being of the people. At that time, and the laws themselves begin... With number one, if a man bring an accusation against a man and charge him with a capital crime, but cannot prove it, he, the accuser, shall be put to death. Right off the bat, we start with a big one. We have the principle underlying the entire legal system that one man accuses another of a crime. We can also see the first place known to history where the principle of presumption of innocence is laid down. Accusations must be proven by the accuser. It's not the defendant who's under any obligation to assert his own innocence, a principle which underlies our own legal system. And finally, it demonstrates a degree of reciprocity in the Babylonian justice system. False accusations were a serious deal and dealt with severely, though it seems likely that the full punishment was reserved mostly for baseless accusations, especially those made with malicious intent. If an extensive trial took place and the defendant was found innocent, though the accuser demonstrated he had good reason to make the accusation, then some speculate that the death penalty may not necessarily have been applied. 2. If a man charge a man with sorcery and cannot prove it, he who is charged with sorcery shall go to the river. Into the river he shall throw himself, and if the river overcome him, his accuser shall take to himself his house. If the river show that that man be innocent, and he come forth unharmed, he who charged him with sorcery shall be put to death. He who threw himself into the river shall take to himself the house of his accuser. Again, another single law about which much could be written, and indeed has been written. Not only do we reinforce the prohibition against false accusations as a general principle, we also learn what the punishment for sorcery was. Magic was a subtle crime, and it was recognized that it could be difficult, if not impossible, for human judges to determine the truth of the matter, and so it was left to the gods in a river ordeal. We discussed river ordeals, or trial by water, in the context of the debate over the city of Hit, a particularly auspicious place to perform these trials. But the short version is that the defendant would be thrown in the river, possibly with a heavy stone, and need to swim underwater a certain distance before coming back up. If you drown or come up too soon, then the gods have decided against you. If a man, in a case pending judgment, bears false or threatening witness, or do not establish the testimony that he has given, if that case be a case involving life, that man shall be put to death. If a man, in a case bear witness for grain or money as a bribe, he shall himself bear the penalty imposed in that case. 
Here again, reciprocal justice and the prohibition of false witness are at the very front of the code, because Hammurabi clearly considered them fundamental aspects of justice in his kingdom. If a judge pronounce a judgment, render a decision, deliver a verdict duly signed and sealed, and afterwards alter his judgment, they shall call that judge to account for the alteration of the judgment which he has pronounced, and he shall pay twelvefold the penalty which was in said judgment, and in the assembly they shall expel him from his seat of judgment, and he shall not return, and with the judges in a case he shall not take his seat." Hammurabi knew that the legal system had to be sacrosanct, and the people responsible for upholding justice had to be held to a higher standard than everyone else. If a man steal the property of a god or temple or palace, that man shall be put to death. He who receives from his hand the stolen property shall also be put to death. Theft from the gods is a serious crime, but this gets to one of the problems of the death penalty. As we will see, the penalty for many sorts of theft is death, which makes temple theft seem relatively less severe, though surely that was not Hammurabi's intention. If a man purchase silver or gold, man-servant or female slave, ox, sheep, or ass, or anything else from a man's son or a man's slave, without witnesses or contracts, or if he receive the same in trust, that man shall be put to death as a thief. Contracts were everywhere in Mesopotamia. Though they were a partly oral culture with very high illiteracy, they knew the problems of trying to do business without written records, as such scribes were everywhere in the cities. If a man steal ox or sheep, ass or pig, or boat, if it be from a god or temple or palace, he shall restore thirtyfold. If it be from a free man, he shall render tenfold. If the thief have nothing wherewith to pay, he shall be put to death. Animals and boats may have been different from valuables when stolen from a temple, because these were merely the wealth of the temple structure and people, and were not directly dedicated to the god until they were ritually sacrificed. Thus, their theft is less blasphemous than stealing things owned directly by the god itself. If a man who has lost anything find that which he has lost in the possession of another man, and the man in whose possession the lost property is found say, it was sold to me, I purchased it in the presence of witnesses. And the owner of the lost property say, I will bring witnesses to identify my lost property. If the purchaser produce the seller who sold it to him and the witnesses in whose presence he purchased it, and the owner of the lost property produce witnesses to identify his lost property, the judges shall consider their evidence. The witnesses in whose presence the purchase was made and the witness to identify the lost property shall give their testimony in the presence of God. The seller shall be put to death as a thief, the owner of the lost property shall recover his loss, and the purchaser shall recover from the estate of the seller the money which was paid out. If the purchaser do not produce the seller who sold it to him, and the witnesses in whose presence he purchased it, and the owner of the lost property produce witness to identify his lost property, 
The purchaser shall be put to death as a thief. The owner of the lost property shall recover his loss. If the owner of the lost property do not produce witnesses to identify his lost property, he has attempted fraud. He has stirred up strife, and he shall be put to death. If the seller has gone to his fate in the meantime, the purchaser shall recover damages in said case fivefold from the estate of the seller. If the witnesses of that man be not at hand, the judges shall declare a postponement for six months. And if he do not bring his witnesses within the six months that man has attempted fraud, he shall bear the penalty imposed in that case. As we could see, some cases could get terribly complicated, but it is likely that Hammurabi selected the more complicated cases as a guide for future judges that encountered their own convoluted cases. They may not get exactly these circumstances, but they were assumed to be intelligent enough to reason from this example of very good court procedure to get a judgment in their own case. If a man steal a man's son, who is a minor, he shall be put to death, which is pretty straightforward. I'm not always convinced that our own justice system is superior to the Babylonian one. If a man aid a male or female slave of the palace, or a male or female slave of a free man, to escape from the city gate, he shall be put to death. Also straightforward. Sometimes I am convinced that our own justice system is superior to the Babylonian one. If a man harbor in his house a male or female slave who has fled from the palace or from a freeman and does not bring the slave forth at the call of the commandment, the owner of that house shall be put to death. If a man sees a male or female slave a fugitive in the field and bring that slave back to his owner, the owner of the slave shall pay him two shekels of silver. If that slave will not name his owner, he shall be brought to the palace, and they shall inquire into his antecedents, and they shall return him to the owner. If he detain that slave in his house, and later the slave be found in his possession, that man shall be put to death. And if the slave escape from the hand of his captor, that man shall so declare in the name of God to the owner of the slave, and shall go free. As mentioned a few episodes ago, records seem to indicate that slave escapes were a bit less common during Hammurabi's Golden Age compared to before and after, and it's possible that rigid enforcement of slave hunting policies contributed to this. <clears throat> If a man make a breach in a house, they shall put him to death in front of that breach, and they shall thrust him therein. This is actually a known case from earlier in Hammurabi's career, in which the burglar made a hole in the wall of a jeweler's shop. Then the wall was repaired, and the burglar repeated the feat a few months later, before finally being caught. The criminal's body hung in front of the open wall for days afterwards as a message of Hammurabi's justice. If a man practice brigandage and be captured, that man shall be put to death. If the brigand be not captured, the man who has been robbed shall, in the presence of God, make an itemized statement of his loss, and the city and the governor, whose province and jurisdiction the robbery was committed, shall compensate him for whatever was lost. 
If it be a life that was lost, the city and governor shall pay one mina of silver to his heirs. It is the city governor's responsibility to provide compensation because it's the city's job to keep the local region free of bandits. And this is Hammurabi's way of holding the city rulers accountable for that. Also, a mina of silver is 60 shekels, with a shekel being the base unit of currency in ancient Mesopotamia since at least Akkadian times, if not earlier. There were no shekel coins, however, it was purely a measure of weight, about 8 grams, and any form of silver was acceptable for exchange as long as it had the right weight. If a fire break out in a man's house, and a man who goes to extinguish it casts his eye on the furniture of the owner of the house, and he take the furniture of the owner of the house, that man shall be thrown into that fire. Nice. If either a soldier or marine, who is ordered out on orders of the king, does not go but hires a substitute and dispatches him in his stead, that soldier or marine shall be put to death. His hired substitute shall take to himself the soldier's house. Little translation note here. The word I'm using for marine is ba-irum, literally meaning fisherman, but taken by some to be a higher sort of land officer. I think it's most likely that these were a special class of professional soldiers, about whom almost nothing is known, who either tended to the boats like sailors, or were in charge of protecting boats, or even possibly acting as a rapid response force, sailing up and down the rivers separately from the main army, who would typically march overland and be supplied by ship. Still, they're clearly professionals, just like the regular soldiers, since a levied civilian was allowed to hire a substitute for, to fulfill his obligations to the state. If a soldier or marine who is in a garrison of the king be captured, and afterwards they give his field and garden to another, and he conduct his business, if the former return and arrive in his city, they shall restore to him his field and garden, and he himself shall conduct his business. If a soldier or marine who is in a fortress of the king be captured and his son be able to conduct the business, they shall give to him the field and garden, and he shall conduct the business of his father. If the son be too young and be not able to conduct the business of his father, they shall give one-third of the field and of the garden to his mother, and his mother shall rear him. If a soldier or marine from the beginning of or account of his business neglect his field, garden, and house, and leave them uncared for, and another return after him to take his field, his garden, and his house, and conducts his business for three years, then if the former returns and desires to manage his field, his garden, or his house, they shall not give to him. He who has taken them and conducted the business shall continue to do so. If he leave them uncared for but one year and return, they shall give him his field, his garden, and his house, and he himself shall continue his business. These plots of land for soldiers was an important part of their compensation. And while it was important for the city to have as much arable land as possible being worked, one wonders just how often soldiers were kept from their land through no fault of their own and lost the compensation that they were away working for. 
Hammurabi's soldiers were pretty much constantly at war from 1765 to 1761, and it isn't clear how the men kept their lands maintained during this time. On the other hand, this is also the first recorded note of adverse possession, a legal principle that remains in our current modern legal code. If a merchant ransom either a soldier or marine who has been captured on an errand of the king and enabled him to reach his city, if there be sufficient ransom in his house, he shall ransom himself. If there not be sufficient ransom in his house, in the temple of his city, he shall be ransomed. If there is not sufficient ransom in the temple of his city, the palace shall ransom him. In no case shall his field or his garden or his house be given for his ransom. If a governor or a magistrate take possession of the men of a levy, or pardon a deserter, or accept and send a hired substitute on an errand of the king, that governor or magistrate shall be put to death. If a governor or magistrate take the property of an officer, plunder an officer, rent out an officer for hire, present an officer in a judgment to a man of influence, or take the gift which a king has given to the officer, that governor or magistrate shall be put to death. It was, after all, important that the rulers of the cities, with their strong history of being independent kings, not be allowed too much freedom to undermine Hammurabi's military or justice. If a man buy from an officer the cattle or sheep which the king has given to that officer, he shall forfeit his money. In no case shall one sell the field or garden or house of an officer, constable, or tax-gatherer. If a man purchase the field or garden or house of an officer, constable, or tax-gatherer, his deed tablet shall be broken, and he shall forfeit his money, and he shall return the field, garden, or house to its owner. An officer, constable, or tax-gatherer shall not deed to his wife or daughter the field, garden, or house which is his business, which is his by virtue of his office, nor shall he assign them for debt. This is the heart of the Ilkham system, pioneered by Rimsin of Larsa, who Hammurabi had only a few years previously conquered. The core of the system was that people who serve the state should be rewarded in land, which they could own as long as they continued to provide the service to the state. In this way, a professional soldier, scribe, or craftsman could comfortably support his family by providing specialized services to the king and be tied to the king more closely than if he was simply paid directly, since he would grow dependent on the income from the king's land. He may deed to his wife or daughter the field, garden, or house which he has purchased and hence possesses, or he may assign them for debt. A woman, merchant, or other property owner may sell field, garden, or house. The purchaser shall conduct the business of the field, garden, or house which he has purchased. These two provisions proclaim that women are valid economic agents, capable of conducting economic exchange. There have been provisions in prior law codes that provide protections for women as vulnerable dependents, but I'm not aware of any that simply acknowledge the equality of women in any sphere of life. It isn't much, but it is something. If a man accepts a field, orchard, or house of a soldier, marine, or state tenant in exchange 
and gives him a compensatory payment for the difference in value, the soldier, marine, or state tenant shall reclaim his field, orchard, or house, and shall also keep full legal possession of the compensatory payment which was given to him. So, not only was it illegal to sell land from Ilkham, if you did try and buy it, you would be out both the purchase price and the land. If a man rent a field for cultivation and do not produce any grain in the field, they shall call him to account, because he has not performed the work required on the field, and he shall give the owner of the field grain on the basis of the adjacent fields. If he does not cultivate the field and neglect it, he shall give to the owner of the field grain on the basis of the adjacent fields, and the field which had been neglected he shall break up with hoes. He shall harrow, and he shall return to the owner of the field. If a man rent an unclaimed field for three years to develop it, and neglect it and does not develop the field, in the fourth year he shall break up the field with hoes. He shall hoe and harrow it, and he shall return to the owner of the field, and measure out ten gur of grain per ten gan. Essentially, all this means is that if you rented a field, it was now your obligation to plant the field, since you would be paying the landlord with a percentage of that crop. If you got lazy, you were required to pay based on what you should have harvested, and you had to prepare the field for the next year before leaving. If a man rent his field to a tenant for crop rent, and receive the crop rent of his field, and later adad the storm god inundate the field and carry away the produce, the loss falls on the tenant. If he have not received the rent of his field, and he has rented the field for either one-half or one-third of the crop, the tenant and the owner of the field shall divide the grain which is on the field according to that agreement." If the tenant should declare his intention to cultivate the field in the next year, because in the previous year he didn't recover his expenses, the owner of the field will not object. His same cultivator shall cultivate his field, and he shall take his same share of grain at the harvest in accordance with the contract. If a man owes a debt and a dad inundates his field and carries away the produce, or, through lack of water, grain has not grown in the field, in that year he shall not make any return of grain to his creditor. He shall alter his contract tablet, and he shall not pay interest for that year. Here we start to get into the nitty-gritty of agricultural business. After all, a large portion of the population would have been farmers, and so quite a lot of court cases would naturally involve their disputes. What if a storm damages the harvest? There are a million things that could go wrong, but presumably from these cases, a clever judge could reason out a solution consistent with Hammurabi's code for his own case. If a man obtain money from a merchant and give as security to the merchant a field to be planted with grain and sesame, and say to him, Cultivate the field and take to thyself the grain and sesame which is produced. If the tenant raise grain and sesame in the field, at the time of harvest the owner of the field shall receive the grain and sesame which is in the field, and he shall give to the merchant grain for the loan which he had obtained for him, and for interest and for the maintenance of the tenant. 
If he give as security a field planted with grain or a field planted with sesame, the owner of the field shall receive the grain or the sesame which is in the field, and he shall return the loan and its interest to the merchant. If he does not have the money to return, he shall give to the merchant grain or sesame at their market value, according to the scale fixed by the king, and for the loan and its interest which he has obtained from the merchant. If the tenant does not secure a crop of grain or sesame in his field, he shall not cancel his contract. This is pretty simply, a person must pay back his loans. It seems likely that the institution of lending in Mesopotamia began when wealthier men lent the seed capital at planting time so that poorer farmers could have something to plant for the year to be paid back at harvest. Additionally, landowners could apparently pay back a loan directly with a field, though in that case it seems they also had to pay for the cultivator as well. The lender wasn't going to go out there and break his back working for his own debt. If a man neglect to strengthen his dike and do not strengthen it, and a break be made in his dike, and the water carried away the farmland, the man in whose dike the break has made shall restore the grain which has been damaged. If he is not able to restore the grain, they shall sell him into slavery and his goods, and the farmer whose grain the water has carried away shall share in the results of the sale. If a man open his canal for irrigation and neglect it, and the water carry away an adjacent field, he shall measure out grain on the basis of the adjacent fields. If a man open up the water, and the water carries away the improvements of an adjacent field, he shall measure out ten gur of grain per ten gan. A gur is a unit of volume. Ten gur is about three thousand liters. A gan is about two-thirds of a hectare. So about 500 liters per hectare, a good portion of harvest, though not all of it in most fields. Also, canals were a major public works project for Mesopotamian cities, but the city only constructed the main artery. Individual farmers dug their own branch channels to irrigate particular fields from the main artery, keeping each fork dammed up when not in use. But the tremendous flatness and lack of drainage meant that a poorly constructed channel could easily damage your own or your neighbor's field. If a shepherd have not come to an agreement with the owner of a field to pasture his sheep on the grass, and if he pastures his sheep on the field without the consent of the owner, the owner of the field shall harvest his field, and the shepherd who has pastured his sheep on the field without the consent of the owner shall give over and above twenty gur of grain per ten gan to the owner of the field. This is about 6,000 liters for 6.4 hectares, or about 1,000 liters per hectare. If, after the sheep and goats come up from the common irrigated area, when the pennants announcing the termination of pasturing are wound around the main city gate, the shepherd releases the goats and sheep into a field and allows the goats and sheep to graze in the field, the shepherd shall guard the field in which he allowed them to graze, and at the time of harvest he shall measure out sixty gur of grain per ten gan to the owner of the field. And this is about three thousand liters per hectare.
The problem of sheep grazing in people's fields is one as old as agriculture, and would continue to cause problems even well into the modern age, with the enclosure debates in England some 3,000 years later. Considering that some of the best fields known to us in all of Mesopotamian history produced about 2,500 liters per hectare, wantonly grazing your sheep in someone's field after being signaled by the city to stop was severely punished. If a man cut down a tree in a man's orchard without the consent of the owner of the orchard, he shall pay one-half mina of silver or about 30 shekels, a quarter kilogram, or half a pound of silver. In old Akkadian times, nearly all crimes were addressed with restitutive fines like this, and some of that carries over into Hammurabi's code, mixed in with the Amorite death penalties sprinkled everywhere. If a man gives a field to a gardener to plant as an orchard, and the gardener plant the orchard and care for the orchard four years, in the fifth year the owner of the orchard and gardener shall share equally. The owner of the orchard shall mark off his portion and take it. That five years is significant because a date palm, the most common sort of orchard and fruit in southern Mesopotamia, took about five years to begin producing fruit, and would last for 30 years in total. If the gardener does not plant the whole field, but leave a space to waste, they shall assign the waste space to his portion. If he does not plant as an orchard the field which was given to him, if corn be the produce of the field, for the years during which it has been neglected, the gardener shall measure out to the owner of the field such produce on the basis of the adjacent fields, and he shall perform the required work on the field, and he shall restore it to the owner of the field. Why would a gardener hired to make an orchard instead make a barley field? I don't know. But clearly, since this is a judicial precedent, it must have happened at some point. If the field be unreclaimed, he shall perform the required work on the field, and he shall restore it to the owner of the field, and he shall measure out ten gur of grain per ten gan for each year, or about five hundred liters of barley per hectare. If a man give his orchard to a gardener to manage, the gardener shall give to the owner of the orchard two-thirds of the produce of the orchard as long as he's in possession of the orchard. He himself shall take one-third. If the gardener does not properly manage the orchard and he diminishes the produce, the gardener shall measure out the produce of the orchard on the basis of the adjacent orchards. This is quite similar to the earlier regulations about renting farmland, but for orchard typically for growing date palms. Following this, law number 65 by the conventional counting, we have a gap in the original text. Fortunately, there are other fragmentary copies of the code that have been recovered, and some historians have reconstructed the gaps in various ways. I will be following Martha Roth's reconstruction, but there are others. Many of these are simply too broken for understanding, but the following laws are comprehensible, though a bit less well-organized thanks to the many gaps. If a man borrows silver from a merchant, and his merchant presses him for payment, but he has nothing to give in repayment, and therefore he gives his orchard after pollination to the merchant and declares to him, take away as many dates as will be grown in the orchard as payment for your silvered, 
the merchant will not agree. The owner of the orchard shall himself harvest the dates that are grown in the orchard. He shall satisfy the merchant with silver and the interest on it in accordance with the terms of the contract. And only the owner of the orchard shall take the dates that are grown on the orchard in excess of the debt. It's interesting that despite the many acknowledgments in the code itself that large parts of society are essentially without silver currency, date orchards are apparently assumed to be of a standing in society at which they should be expected to be operate in silver rather than in goods. If a man declares to the owner of a rundown house, Reinforce your scalable wall, they could scale over the wall to here from your house, or to the owner of an uncultivated plot, work your uncultivated plot, they could break into my house from your uncultivated plot, and he secures a witness to this warning, then if a thief breaks in by scaling the wall, the owner of the rundown house shall replace anything which is lost by the scaling. If a thief breaks in by access to the uncultivated plot, the owner of the uncultivated plot shall replace anything which was lost. Now, I'm not sure exactly how a run-down wall or empty field in your neighbor's yard makes my own house any less safe, but the general concept makes sense here, and in fact this very law was featured in previous law codes from Lippet Ishtar. If a man rents a house, and the tenant gives the full amount of silver for his annual rent to the owner of the house, but the owner of the house then orders the tenant to leave before the expiration of the full term of his lease, the owner of the house, because he evicted the tenant before the expiration of the full term of his lease, shall forfeit the silver that the tenant gave to him. Nice to see that early termination fees used to apply to landlords as well as renters. If a man borrows silver, he shall weigh and deliver his silver and the interest on it at harvest. If he has nothing to give, he shall give to him any of his property, any commodity or grain. Which further illustrates that borrowing silver for general purposes was done similarly to borrowing grain, to be repaid with the harvest, the one time each year that most farmers would have had anything at all to repay the merchant with. If a merchant gives grain or silver as an interest-bearing loan, he shall take 100 silas of grain per cur as interest, approximately 33%. If he gives silver as an interest-bearing loan, he shall take 36 grains per shekel of silver as interest. Now, these rates may sound exorbitant, but remember that these loans are loans of seed grain. It is expected that each seed should multiply into tens or possibly even hundreds of seeds in a normal year, and thus only a third more than the original is fairly reasonable. Similarly, if money is being loaned for long-distance trading ventures, then the adventure should provide at least a few times the initial investment to be worth it. Still, the problem of usurious rates was apparently severe enough that Hammurabi had to set these maximum rates. So apparently without the laws, the interest rates would be even harsher. If a man who has an interest-bearing loan does not have the silver with which to repay it, the merchant shall take grain and silver in accordance with the royal edict and the interest on it at the annual rate of 60 silas per one cur. 
if the merchant should attempt to increase and collect the interest on the silver loan up to the grain interest rate of 100 silas of grain per cur, or 33%, or in any other way beyond 36 grains per shekel, uh, 20% of silver, he shall forfeit whatever he had given. If a merchant gives grain or silver at interest, and then he takes payment in grain or silver as interest according to the amount of his capital sum, when he takes the grain and silver, his capital and interest in the whole amount, then the tablet recording his debt obligation shall be broken. This was apparently meant literally, since completed debt contracts are found smashed in half in archaeological digs was likely very cathartic for the borrower. If a merchant should take interest and then does not deduct the payments of either grain or silver as much as he received, or does not write a new tablet, or adds the interest payments to the capital sum, that merchant shall return twofold as much grain as he received. If a merchant gives grain or silver as an interest-bearing loan, and when he gives it as an interest-bearing loan, he gives the silver according to the small weight, or the grain according to the small measure, but when he receives payment, he receives the silver according to a larger weight, or the grain according to a larger unit of measure, that merchant shall forfeit anything he gave. Obviously, the debts should be measured and paid out in the units they were originally contracted in. It's too easy to fudge things otherwise. If a man borrows grain or silver from a merchant and does not have grain or silver with which to repay, but does have other goods, he shall give them to the merchant in the presence of witnesses, whatever he has at hand, in amounts according to the exchange value. The merchant will not object. He shall accept it. So, even though we did see the laws with orchards that in some cases monetary value should be demanded, in other cases, people have to accept that this is only a partially monetized economy. If a man gives silver to another man for investment in a partnership venture, before the god they shall equally divide the profit or loss. And yes, joint partnerships were a thing as early as the 1900s BCE. See the episode Merchants and Families in Assyria for more on merchants and their early corporations. After this, we return to the main law code with a law typically numbered 100. If a merchant gives silver to a trading agent for conducting business transactions and sends him off on a business trip, the trading agent shall something that has been lost while on the business trip. If he should realize a profit where he went, he shall calculate the total interest per transaction and time elapsed on as much silver as he took, and he shall satisfy that merchant. If he does not meet with success where he goes, the agent shall double the amount of money obtained, and he shall pay it to the merchant. If a merchant gives money to an agent as a favor, and the latter meets with the reverse where he goes, he shall return only the principal of the money to the merchant. If, when he goes on a journey, an enemy robs him of whatever he was carrying, the agent shall take an oath in the name of God and go free. 
So we have three modes of business organization. A joint partnership in which profits and losses are shared, a loan with an implicit interest rate of 100% payable on return, and what is being called a favor with only the capital payable. Then we have implicit here the idea of insurable and uninsurable losses, where a simple failure to make money is the fault of the agent, but an external misfortune like bandits is no one's fault, and the lender takes a loss instead. It isn't exactly how we do things now, but these four laws right here speak to a fair bit of economic complexity in the Babylonian economy. If a merchant give to an agent grain, wool, oil, or goods of any kind with which to trade, the agent shall write down the value and return the money to the merchant. The agent shall take a sealed receipt for the money which he gives to the merchant. If the agent is careless and does not take a receipt for the money which he has given to the merchant, the money not receipted for shall not be placed into his account. If an agent obtains money from a merchant and has a dispute with the merchant, that is, deny the fact of obtaining the money, the merchant shall call the agent to account in the presence of God and witnesses for the money obtained, and the agent shall give to the merchant threefold the amount of money which he obtained. If a merchant lends to an agent and the agent returns to the merchant whatever the merchant has given him, and if the merchant denies receiving what has been given to him, then the agent shall call the merchant to account in the presence of God and witnesses, and the merchant, because he had a dispute with his agent, shall give to him sixfold the amount which he's obtained. Here we have the importance of record-keeping and witnesses for resolving a dispute. If things devolve into he said, she said, then it's trouble all round. If a woman innkeeper should refuse to accept grain for the price of beer, but accepts only silver measured by the large weight, thus reducing the value of beer in relation to the value of grain, they shall charge and convict that woman innkeeper, and they shall cast her into the water. If there should be a woman innkeeper in whose house criminals congregate, and she does not seize those criminals and lead them off to the palace authorities, that woman innkeeper shall be killed. These two fascinate me. There are multiple translations here where innkeeper is replaced by beer maker or beer seller because it isn't clear at all how this was structured. But it is clearly talking about a woman in a role selling beer to people, implicitly running the business, possibly out of her own house while her husband was away, or possibly even making a living without her husband. Though there are many uncertainties about this social role, it's clearly viewed as a place where criminals gather and where fraud occurs. Whether this is because of the alcohol or the female proprietor is unclear. If a priestess who is not living in a convent open a tavern or enter a tavern for a drink, they shall burn that woman. Were priestesses not supposed to drink, or was it just the ill repute of a tavern that was prohibited to a priestess? Either way, this too is fascinating. If a woman innkeeper gives one vat of beer as a loan, she shall take 50 liters of grain at the harvest, which sets up an exchange rate for grain to beer. If a man be on a journey, 
and he give silver, gold, stones, or portable property to a man without a commission for transportation. And if that man does not deliver that which was to be transported where it was to be transported, but takes it for himself, the owner of the transported goods shall call that man to account for the goods to be transported which he did not deliver, and that man shall deliver to the owner the transported goods fivefold to the amount which was given to him. Criminalizing embezzlement. What a nice word. Embezzlement. If a man holds a debt of grain or money against a man, and if he takes grain without the consent of the owner from the heap or the granary, they shall call that man to account for taking grain without the consent of the owner from the heap or the granary, and he shall return as much grain as he took, and he shall forfeit all that was lent, whatever it may be. Because you can't settle a debt through theft. You must go through the court system. If a man does not hold a debt of grain or money against a man, and if he seizes him for a debt, for each seizure he shall pay one-third mina of silver, or twenty shekels, and presumably release the man. Kidnapping is a different, more severe crime. This is only when a debt slavery picks up the wrong person. If a man holds a debt of grain or money against a man and seizes him for debt, and the one seized dies in the house of the one who seized him, that case has no penalty. If the one seized dies of abuse or neglect in the house of the one who seized him, the owner of the one seized shall call the merchant to account. If it be the man's son that was seized, they shall put the, his son to death. If it be a man's slave that was seized, he shall pay one-third mina of silver, and he shall forfeit whatever amount he had lent. By seized, they mean pulled into debt slavery. It seems that a debt slave had the right to not be outright murdered. Other sorts of slaves, like houseborn or war captives, did not necessarily have this right, since debt slavery was at least theoretically temporary. If a man be in debt and sell his wife, son, or daughter, or bind them over to service, for three years they shall work in the house of their purchaser, in the fourth year they shall be given their freedom. If he bind over to service a male or female slave, and if the merchant transfer or sell such slave, there is no cause for complaint. If a man be in debt and he sells his female slave who has borne him children, the owner of that female slave, that is the man in debt, shall repay the money which the merchant paid him, and he shall ransom his female slave. This three-year limit is only for dependents sold by a man to clear his debts. When seized for your own debt, you have to repay that debt. Note also that being sold around is an expected part of becoming human property, and rights are pretty much non-existent, though things get super complicated, as we'll see, when there are slaves with children by the master. 
If a man stores his grain in bins in the house of another, and an accident happens to the granary, or the owner of the house opens a bin and takes grain, or he raises a dispute about the amount of grain which was stored in his house, the owner of the grain shall declare his grain in the presence of God, and the owner of the house shall double the amount of grain which he took and restore it to the owner of the grain." If a man stores grain in the house of another, he shall pay storage at the rate of five silas of grain per gur each year. Selling storage space has legal responsibilities and a standardized fee to go with it, five parts out of every three hundred. If a man give to another silver, gold, or anything else on deposit, whatever he gives he shall show to witnesses, and he shall arrange the contracts, and then he shall make the deposit. If a man give on deposit without witnesses or contracts, and at the place of the deposit they dispute with him, that case has no penalty. If a man gives to another silver, gold, or anything else on deposit in the presence of witnesses, and the latter denies that it was ever given, they shall call that man to account, and he shall double whatever he disputed and repay it. If a man gives anything of his on deposit, and at the place of deposit either by burglary or pillage he suffer loss in common with the owner of the house, the owner of the house who has been negligent and has lost what was given to him on deposit shall make good the loss and restore it to the owner of the goods. The owner of the house shall institute a search for what has been lost and take it himself from the thief. If a man has not lost anything but says that he's lost something, or if he files a claim for loss when nothing has been lost, he shall declare his alleged loss in the presence of God. He shall double and pay for the pretend loss, the amount for which he has made claim. Again, rights and responsibilities for general storage, the very earliest of banks. If a man point the finger at a priestess or the wife of another and cannot justify it, they shall drag that man before the judges and they shall brand his forehead. Other translations also have him being flogged before the judges as well as being branded for a false accusation against these two types of women. If a man take a wife and do not arrange with her the proper contracts, that woman is not a legal wife because marriage is fundamentally a business contract, passing ownership of a woman from father to husband. If the wife of a man be taken in lying with another man, they shall bind them both and throw them into the river. If the husband of the woman would save his wife, then the king shall allow the other man to live as well. If a man forced the betrothed wife of another who has not known a man and is living in her father's house, and he lie in her bosom and they take him, that man shall be put to death and the woman shall go free. This may sound like a difference between rape and adultery, but reading carefully, it seems that only a virgin fiancé can be raped. For a full wife, any intercourse with another man seems to be adultery. If a man accuse his wife, and she has not been taken in lying with another man, she shall take the oath in the name of God, and she shall return to her house. Proof was critical. It seems that if you didn't actually catch the cheaters, and the woman was willing to swear before the very gods, 
then she couldn't be accused of anything. If the finger has been pointed at the wife of a man because of another man, and she has not been taken in lying with another man, for her husband's sake she shall throw herself into the river. Now, throwing into the river, or trial by water, wasn't a mandatory death sentence. There was a chance to survive it if the gods approved. But when things weren't so clear as to merit execution, but still murky enough that the woman couldn't simply be allowed to go free, then the river trial was called for. If a man be captured and there be maintenance in his house, and his wife go out of her house, she shall protect her body, and she shall not enter into another house. If the woman does not protect her body and enters into another house, they shall call that woman into account, and they shall throw her into the water. If a man be captured and there is no maintenance in his house, and his wife enters into another house, that woman has no blame. All of which reinforces the idea that a woman's job was to keep herself reproductively available for a man, so long as that man could, in turn, provide for her. If a man be captured, and there be no maintenance in his house, and his wife enter openly into another house and bears children, if later her husband returns and arrives in his city, that woman shall return to her husband, and the children shall go to their true father. If a man deserts his city and flees, and afterwards his wife enters into another house, if that man returns and would take his wife, the wife of the fugitive shall not return to her husband, because he hated his city and fled. And then you get into the soap opera scenarios that this could produce. Notice how the consent of the woman is never an issue, just economic and patriotic factors. If a man sets his face to put away a concubine who has borne him children, or a wife who has presented him with children, he shall return to that woman her dowry, and give to her the income of the field, gardens, and goods, and she shall bring up her children. From the time her children are grown up, from whatever was given to her children, they shall give to her a portion corresponding that of a son, and the man of her choice may marry her. If a man would put away his wife who has not borne him children, he shall give her money to the amount of her marriage settlement, and he shall make good to her the dowry which she has brought from her father's house, and then he may put her away. If there was no marriage settlement, he shall give to her one mina of silver for a divorce. This is among the Awulam upper class, though it isn't clearly stated in the law, for when the wife brings in no dowry for whatever reason. One mina is 60 shekels, not all that much to support a woman for the long term. If he be a freeman, he shall give her one-third mina of silver. For the freeman, or mushkenum, the penalties throughout the code are lower in recognition of their more limited means. If the wife of a man who is living in his house set her face to go out and play the part of a fool, neglect her house, belittle her husband, they shall call her to account. If her husband says, I have put her away, he shall let her go. On her departure, nothing shall be given to her for her divorce. If her husband says, I have not put her away, her husband may take another woman. The first woman shall dwell in the house of her husband as a slave. This is one of the more interesting laws. 
A woman who fails to uphold her duties to her husband's satisfaction or brings disrepute to the family then can be divorced with no consequences or simply enslaved and replaced. If this doesn't make Bronze Age misogyny clear, nothing will. If a woman hates her husband and says, Thou shalt not have me, they shall inquire into her antecedents for her defects. If she is found to have been a careful mistress and been without reproach, and her husband has been going about and greatly belittling her, that woman has no blame. She shall receive her dowry and go to her father's house. If she has not been a careful mistress, has gadded about, has neglected her house, and has belittled her husband, they shall throw that woman into the water. This is the equivalent of divorce for women. If she has been diligent and dutiful but mistreated, then she can take her dowry and leave. But if she has been trouble, then, well, the gods get to decide. At no point does the man get in any trouble in either male or female-initiated divorce. Still, at least it was possible for a woman to leave in some cases. She wasn't trapped in an abusive relationship with no recourse, making ancient Babylon more modern and progressive than the Philippines. If a man take a wife, and that wife give a maidservant to her husband, and she bear children, if that man set his face to take a concubine, they shall not countenance him. He may not take a concubine. And now we get into the nitty-gritty of polygamy. And oh my goodness, there are so many different variations on it that it makes my head spin. Commentary is going to be a little bit thin on this part, because it speaks for itself, I think. When a man take a wife, and he does not present him with children, and he sets his face to take a concubine, that man may take a concubine and bring her into his house. That concubine shall not rank with his wife. If a man take a wife, and she give a female slave to her husband, that female slave bears children, and afterwards would take rank with her mistress, because she has borne children, her mistress may not sell her for money, but she may reduce her to bondage and count her among her own slaves. If she has not borne children, her mistress may sell that slave for money. If a man takes a wife, and she becomes afflicted with disease, and if he sets his face to take another, he may. His wife, who is afflicted with disease, shall not be put away. She shall remain in the house which he has built, and he shall maintain her as long as she lives. If that woman does not elect to remain in her husband's house, he shall make good to her the dowry which she brought from her father's house, and she may go. If a man gives to his wife field, garden, house, or goods, and he deliver to her a sealed deed after the death of her husband, her children cannot make a claim against her. The mother, after her death, may will to her child whom she loves, but to a brother she may not. If a woman who dwells in the house of a man makes a contract with her husband that a creditor of his may not hold her for his debts and compel him to deliver a written agreement, if that man were in debt before he took that woman, his creditor may not hold his wife. If that woman were in debt before she entered the house of that man, her creditor may not hold her husband. If they contract a debt 
after the woman has entered into the house of the man, both of them shall be answerable to the merchant. If a woman brings about the death of her husband for the sake of another man, they shall impale her. Impaling is probably the translation of some specialized torture, since murder was already illegal just in general. And now what follows are the incest laws. If a man has known his daughter, they shall expel that man from the city. If a man has betrothed a bride to his son, and his son has known her, if he, the father, afterward lies in her bosom, and they take him, they shall bind that man and throw him in the water. If a man has betrothed the bride to his son, and his son has not known her, but he himself lies in her bosom, he shall pay her one half mina of silver, thirty shekels, and he shall make good to her whatever she brought from the house of her father, and the man of her choice may take her. If a man lie in the bosom of his mother after the death of his father, they shall burn both of them. If a man, after the death of his father, be taken in the bosom of the chief wife of his father, who has borne children, that man shall be cut off from his father's house. Now, this doesn't cover every case, but it does create a hierarchy of relation by which a judge can compare the incest which occurred and set an appropriate punishment. If a man who has brought a present to the house of his father-in-law and has given the marriage settlement looks with longing upon another woman and says to his father-in-law, I will not take your daughter, the father of the daughter will keep whatever presents or bride wealth was paid. If a man brings a present to the house of his father-in-law and gives a marriage settlement, the father of the daughter shall keep for himself whatever presents were given to him. If a man brings a present to the house of his father-in-law and gives a marriage settlement, and the father of the daughter says, I will not give you my daughter, then the father-in-law will double the amount which was brought to him and return it. If a man brings a present to the house of his father-in-law and gives a marriage settlement and his friend slanders him, and if his father-in-law says to the claimant for his wife, my daughter will not have you, the father-in-law shall then double the amount which was brought to him and return it, but his friend may not have his wife. These relate to a peculiarity of the Babylonian marriage customs. A man would make a deal with the father of the bride and give to him the bride payment. They would then live as sort of separated fiancés for a while before the actual marriage. During this, things could fall apart with some penalty, but less trouble than after the marriage had taken place. If a man take a wife and she bear him children and that woman die, her father may not lay claim to her dowry. Her dowry belongs to her children. Remember that the dowry was mostly for when things went wrong, and that despite all the pretty terrible cases written into law, most families were happy and most dowries went untouched and would be passed on to the children. This particular law is almost certainly what happened in the vast majority of cases. If a man take a wife and she do not present him with children and that woman dies, if his father-in-law returns to him the marriage settlement which that man brought to the house of his father-in-law, her husband may not lay claim to the dowry of that woman, 
Her dowry belongs to the house of her father. If his father-in-law does not return to him the marriage settlement, he may deduct from her dowry the amount of the marriage settlement and return the rest of her dowry to the house of her father, very much like a husband receiving a refund on defective goods. If a man presents field, garden, or house to his favorite son and write for him a sealed deed, after the father dies, when the brothers divide, he shall take the present which his father gave him, and over and above that they shall divide the goods of the father's house equally. If a man takes wives for his sons and does not take a wife for his youngest son, after the father dies, when the brothers divide, he shall take the present which his father gave him. Over and above that, they shall divide the goods of their father's house equally. If a man takes a wife and she bears him children and that woman dies, after her death, he takes another wife, and she bears him children, and later the father dies. The children of the mothers shall not divide the estate. They shall receive the dowries of their respective mothers, and divide equally the goods of the house of their father. Inheritance matters. Typically, the property was divided equally among the male children, but obviously there were plenty of exceptions that could be made. If a man set his face to disinherit his son and says to the judges, I will disinherit my son, the judges shall inquire into his antecedents. If the son has not committed a crime sufficiently grave to cut him off from sonship, the father may not cut off his son from sonship. If he has committed a crime against his father sufficiently grave to cut him off from sonship, they shall condone his first offense. If he commits a crime a second time, then the father may cut off his son from sonship. I think this speaks volumes about the culture of Babylon that this would occur often enough for a law to be necessary. If a man's wife bear him children, and his female slave bears him children, and the father during his lifetime says to the children which the slave bore him, You are my children, and reckons them with the children of his wife, after the father dies, the children of the wife and the children of the slave shall divide the goods of the father's house equally. The child of the wife shall have the right of choice at the division." But if a father dies during his lifetime and has not said to the children which the slave woman bore him, you are my children, after the father dies, the children of the slave woman shall not share in the goods of the father's house with the children of the wife. The slave woman and her children shall be given their freedom. The children of the wife may not lay claim to the children of the slave woman for their slavery." The woman shall receive her dowry and the gift which her husband gave and deeded to her on a tablet, and she may dwell in the house of her husband and enjoy the property as long as she lives. She cannot sell it, however, for after her death it will belong to her children. If her husband has not given her a gift, they shall make good her dowry, and she shall receive the goods of her husband's house, a proportion corresponding to that of the son." 
If her children scheme to drive her out of the house, the judges shall inquire into her antecedents, and if the children be in the wrong, she shall not go out from her husband's house. If the woman sets her face to go out, she shall leave to her children the gift which her husband gave her, and she shall receive the dowry of her father's house, and the husband of her choice may take her. More inheritance matters. It seems that it may have been more important to have inheritance matters spelled out in law, since one of the parties was unable to stand up for himself anymore. Family matters get very complicated, as we see. If that woman bears children to her later husband in whose house she has entered, and later on that woman dies, the former and later children shall divide her dowry. If either a slave of the palace or a slave of a freeman takes the daughter of a gentleman and she bears children, the owner of the slave may not lay claim to the children of the daughter of the freeman for service. Gentleman here refers to the Aulu class, but this likely applies to the middle class freeman as well. In general, it seems a child follows his mother's status, except when specifically exempted, such as... If a slave of the palace or a slave of the freeman takes the daughter of a gentleman, and if, when he takes her, she enters into the house of the slave of the palace or the slave of the freeman with the dowry of her father's house, if, from the time that they join hands, they build a house and acquire property, and if later on the slave of the palace or the slave of the freeman die, the daughter of the man shall receive her dowry, and they shall divide into two parts whatever her husband and she had acquired from the time they joined hands. The owner of the slave shall receive one half, and the daughter of the man shall receive one half for her children. If the daughter of the man had no dowry, they shall divide into two parts whatever her husband and she had acquired from the time they joined hands. The owner of the slave shall receive one half, and the daughter of the man shall receive one half for her children. If a widow, whose children are minors, decides to enter another house, she cannot do so without the consent of the judges. When she enters another house, the judges shall inquire into the state of her former husband, and they shall entrust the estate of the former husband to the later husband and that woman, and they shall deliver to them a tablet to sign. They shall administer the estate and rear the minors. They may not sell the household goods. He who purchases household goods belonging to the sons of a widow shall forfeit his money. These goods shall revert to the owner. This is to protect the inheritance of the minor children. If there is a priestess or a devotee to whom her father has given a dowry or written deed of gift, if in the deed which he's written for her he has not written, after her death she may give to whomsoever she may please, and if he has not granted her full discretion, after her father dies, her brother shall take her field and garden, and they shall give her grain, oil, and wool, according to the value of her share, and they shall make her content. If her brothers do not give her grain, oil, and wool, according to the value of her share, and they do not make her content, she may give her field and garden to any tenant she may please, and her tenant shall maintain her. She shall enjoy the field, garden, or anything else which her father gave her as long as she lives. She may not sell it nor transfer it. Her heritage belongs to her brothers. 
if there be a priestess or a devotee to whom her father has given a dowry or written deed of gift, if in the deed he has written for her, after her death she may give to whomsoever she may please, and he has granted her full discretion. After her father dies, she may give it to whomsoever she may please after her death. Her brothers may not lay claim against her. If a father does not give dowry to his daughter, a bride, or a priestess, after the father dies, she shall receive as her share in the goods of her father's house the portion of a son, and she shall enjoy it as long as she lives. After her death, it belongs to her brothers. If a father devotes his daughter as a priestess to a god and does not give her a dowry, after her father dies, she shall receive as her share in the goods of her father one-third of the portion of a son, and she shall enjoy it as long as she lives. After her death, it belongs to her brothers. If a man does not give a dowry to his daughter, a priestess of Marduk of Babylon, and does not write for her a deed of gift, after her father dies, she shall receive as her share with her brothers one-third the portion of a son in the goods of her father's house, but she shall not conduct the business thereof. A priestess of Marduk, after her death, may give to whomever she may please." If a father presents a dowry to his daughter, who is a concubine, and give her to a husband, and write a deed of gift, after the husband dies, she shall not share in the goods of her father's house. If a man does not present a dowry to his daughter, who is a concubine, and does not give her to a husband, after his father dies, her brothers shall present her with a dowry proportionate to the fortune of her father's house, and they shall give her to a husband." If a man takes in his name a young child as a son and rears him, one may not bring claim for that adopted son. Now this last one is a bit hard to parse, but apparently means children who are abandoned at a young age and raised by another cannot be reclaimed much later on by the original parents, having forfeited their claim by abandoning the child. If a man takes a young child as a son, and when he takes him, he's rebellious towards his father and his mother who have adopted him, then that adopted son shall return to the house of his father. One may not bring a claim for the son of a prostitute, or a palace slave, or the son of a priestess, presumably because these classes should not be having children in the first place, though it is very unclear what the exact translation of these particular occupations should be. If an artisan take a son for adoption and teach him his handicraft, one may not bring a claim for him. If he does not teach him his handicraft, that adopted son may return to his father's house. If a man does not reckon among his sons the young child whom he has taken and reared, that adopted son may return to his father's house. Meaning, if the adoptive father does not properly care for the child like his own son, then he has no claim to the child. If a man who has taken a young child as his son and reared him establishes his own house and acquires children and then sets his face to cut off the adopted son, that son shall not go his way. The father who reared him shall give to him his goods one-third of the portion of a son, and he shall go. He shall not give to him a field, garden, or house." If the son of a prostitute or the son of a priestess says to his father who has reared him or his mother who has reared him, My father, thou art not, 
My mother thou art not. They shall cut out his tongue. Insolent little prick. If the son of a prostitute or the son of a priestess identify his own father's house and hate that father that has reared him or that mother that has reared him and go back to his original father's house, they shall pluck out his eye. It's a bit stronger than the biblical honor thy father and mother, though there are also issues of lower status children being insolent before their higher class parents who are, after all, giving them so very much. If a man give his son to a nurse, and that son dies in the hands of the nurse, and that nurse substitutes another son without the consent of his father or mother, they shall call her to account, because she substituted another son without the consent of his father and mother, they shall cut off her breast. Clearly, children are not arbitrarily interchangeable. And here we get to the famous criminal part of the code. Generally here, the corporal punishments are reserved for the upper Aulu class, while the financial punishments are to compensate the freeman Mushkenu class. Recall for these punishments that a standard laborer could expect a wage of about one shekel per month, and one mina is 60 shekels. If a son strike his father, they shall cut off his fingers. If a man destroys the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. If one breaks a man's bone, they shall break his bone. If one destroys the eye of a freeman or breaks the bone of a freeman, he shall pay one mina of silver. If he destroys the eye of a man's slave or breaks a bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half his price. If a man knocks out the tooth of a man his own rank, they shall knock out his tooth. If one knocks out the tooth of a freeman, he shall pay one-third mina of silver. If a man commits an assault on a man who is his superior, he shall receive sixty strokes with an oxtail whip in public. If the man strikes another man of his own rank, he shall pay one mina of silver. If a freeman strikes a freeman, he shall pay ten shekels of silver. If a man's slave strikes a man's son, they shall cut off his ear. The slave's ear, not the son's ear. If a man strikes another man in a quarrel and wounds him, he shall swear, I struck him without intent, and he shall be responsible for the physician. If he dies as a result of the strike, he shall swear as above, and if he be a man, he shall pay one half mina of silver. If he be a freeman, he shall pay one third mina of silver. If a man strikes a man's daughter and brings about a miscarriage, he shall pay ten shekels of silver for her miscarriage. If that woman die, they shall put his daughter to death. If, through a stroke, he brings about a miscarriage to the daughter of a freeman, he shall pay five shekels of silver. If that woman die, he shall pay one-half mina of silver. If he strikes the female slave of a man and brings about a miscarriage, he shall pay two shekels of silver. If that female slave dies, he shall pay one-third mina of silver. Note that one-third mina, about twenty shekels, is pretty much the average value of a slave throughout this period. If a physician operates on a man for a severe wound with a bronze lancet and saves the man's life, or if he opens an abscess in the eye of a man with a bronze lancet and saves that man's eye, he shall receive ten shekels of silver as his fee. If he be a freeman, he shall receive five shekels. 
If it be a man's slave, the owner of that slave shall give two shekels of silver to the physician. Now we are getting into a section of occupational laws, and something that strikes me is that the quoted price for Bronze Age surgery is remarkably low, especially for slaves. Why would a physician ever operate on a slave given that the penalties for messing up are as follows? If a physician operates on a man for a severe wound with a bronze lancet and causes that man's death, or opens an abscess in the eye of the man with a bronze lancet and destroys the man's eye, they shall cut off his fingers. If a physician operate on a slave of a freeman for a severe wound with a bronze lancet and causes his death, he shall restore a slave of equal value. If we take the average value of a slave to be 15 to 30 shekels, averaging about 20, then we assume that the doctor can confidently perform at least 10 of these surgeries without messing up. Otherwise, the doctor would fall into bankruptcy. Freaking eye surgery with Bronze Age tools must have had a less than 10% failure rate. And if we look at the penalty for the upper-class awalam, then these advanced surgeries must have been astonishingly reliable for the age. Either that, or there was somehow a surplus of fingerless doctors in Babylon, though you would expect to see this referenced in some other source if it was the case. If he opens an abscess in the eye of a slave with a bronze lancet and destroys the slave's eye, he shall pay silver to extent of one half of his price. If a physician sets a broken bone for a man or cures his diseased bowels, the patient shall give five shekels of silver to the physician. If he be a freeman, he shall give three shekels of silver. If it be a man's slave, the owner of the slave shall give two shekels of silver to the physician. If a veterinary physician operates on an ox or an ass for a severe wound and save its life, the owner of the ox or ass shall give to the physician as his fee one-sixth of a shekel of silver. If he operates on an ox or an ass for a severe wound and cause its death, he shall give to the owner of the ox or ass one-fourth its value. Now this alone gives us a sense that Babylonian doctors were capable of getting into at least some parts of the body and good for all sorts of general injuries and veterinary complaints as well. Remarkable for the era, in my opinion, and it doesn't seem to be too much worse than what later Greek doctors, even though they had a theoretical basis for their medical practice, while Mesopotamian doctors were operating wholly on theology and empirical evidence. If a brander, without the consent of the owner of the slave, brand a slave with a sign that he cannot be sold, they shall cut off the fingers of that brander. If a man deceives a brander and he brands a slave with a sign that says he cannot be sold, they shall put that man to death, and they shall cast him into his house. The brander shall swear, I did not brand him knowingly, and he shall go free. Now, the details of these two laws are a bit controversial, with difficulties surrounding the word abutum. Some think it was a brand permanently pressed into the flesh, while some think it was a particular hairstyle that was illegal to shave off. Still others have proposed a clay tag worn either permanently either around the neck or as a piercing. Whatever the particular form, the point was that a slave had visible markers for his servitude, and removing those was bad news. 
If a builder build a house for a man and complete it, that man shall give him two shekels of silver per sar of house as his wage, with a sar being about 380 square feet, a pretty reasonable price for a house, even the fairly simple mud brick rectangle houses of the Middle East. It suggests that construction was fairly rapid, and of course the materials were essentially free, being just mud dug out of a river. If a builder builds a house for a man and does not make its construction firm, and the house which he has built collapse and cause the death of the owner of the house, that builder shall be put to death. If it cause the death of a son of the owner of the house, they shall put to death a son of that builder. If it cause the death of a slave of the owner of the house, he shall give the owner of the house a slave of equal value. If it destroyed property, he shall restore whatever it destroyed, and because he did not make the house which he built firm and it collapsed, he shall rebuild the house which collapsed at his own expense. If a builder build a house for a man and does not make its constructions meet the requirements and a wall falls in, then the builder shall strengthen that wall at his own expense. Clearly, the Babylonians had problems with unreliable contractors, much like we do today. But if only we had the balls to handle them like Hammurabi did, then maybe it wouldn't be so rare to come across a man who knows his job and does it responsibly. If a boatman builds a boat of sixty gur for a man, he shall give him two shekels of silver as his wage. Now, assuming this is some sort of standard size for a Mesopotamian riverboat, then 60 gur is about 18 cubic meters, or about half the volume of a standard 20-foot shipping container. Not bad for a small riverboat, and cheap besides. If a boatman builds a boat for a man, and he does not make its construction seaworthy, and that boat meets with a disaster in the same year in which it was put into commission, the boatman shall reconstruct the boat, and he shall strengthen it at his own expense, and he shall give the boat when strengthened to the owner of the boat. If a man hires his boat to a boatman, and the boatman is careless, and he sinks or wrecks the boat, the boatman shall replace the boat to the owner of the boat. If a man hires a boatman and a boat and freight it with grain, wool, oil, dates, or any other kind of freight, and that boatman is careless and he sinks the boat or wrecks its cargo, the boatman shall replace the boat which he sank and whatever portion of the cargo he wrecked. If a boatman sinks a man's boat and refloats it, he shall give silver to the extent of one half its value. If a man hires a boatman, he shall give him six gur of grain per year or about 1,800 liters. Interesting that boatmen are not expected to be paid in silver, though with that much he could easily feed a family of between three to five, and grain was often used as a secondary currency to trade for other goods and types of food. If a boat underway strikes a ferry boat or a boat at anchor and sinks it, the owner of the boat whose boat was sunk shall make a declaration in the presence of God and everything that was lost in his boat and the owner of the vessel underway which sank the ferry boat shall replace his boat with whatever was lost. Quite a bit of consumer protection survives specifically for the area of shipping, though recall that the lifeblood of the economy is the often invisible boatman and his trade up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. If a man seizes an ox for debt, he shall pay one-third mina of silver. 
Not really sure what's going on here, since seizing property for debt collection is usually pretty kosher, but perhaps because it's an ox, it's considered fundamental to the means of production, and so is not valid for collections, but I'm not really sure on that. If a man hires an ox for a year, he shall give to its owner four gur of grain as the hire of a rear pulling ox, and three gur of grain as the hire of a middle or front hitched ox. This is about 1,200 liters of grain for the rear ox and 900 liters for other oxen. It seems that oxen in the rear of the team needed to be the largest and strongest, pulling a disproportionate amount of the load, and were fed extra accordingly. If a man hire an ox or an ass, and a lion kills it in the field, it's the owner's affair. Just a friendly reminder here that wild animals, including lions, were still going concerns in Mesopotamia a few thousand years ago, before all being hunted to extinction, and a farmer couldn't be held responsible for natural hazards. If a man hire an ox and cause its death through neglect or abuse, he shall restore an ox of equal value to the owner of the ox. Of course, if the death of a rented animal is your fault, then you pay for it. If a man hire an ox and he break its foot or cut its hamstring, he shall restore an ox of equal value to the owner of the ox. If a man hires an ox and destroys its eye, he shall pay silver to the owner of the ox to the extent of one-half its value. If a man hires an ox and breaks its horn or cuts off its tail or injures the flesh through which the ring passes, he shall pay silver to the owner of the ox to the extent of one-quarter its value. If a man hire an ox, and God strikes it, and it dies, the man who hired the ox shall take an oath before God and go free. If a bull, when passing through the street, gores a man and brings about his death, this case has no penalty. If a man's bull has been wont to gore, and they have made known to him his habit of goring, and he has not protected his horns or have not tied him up, and that bull gores a man of the Aulu class and brings about his death, he shall pay one-half mina of silver. This is fascinating and is legally representative of the differences between mere accident and negligence, a distinction that could be used in a variety of unrelated cases. Sometimes bad things happen, but once a risk has been identified, it's the bull owner's job to keep the risk under control. Also interesting is that even though it is an upper-class awalu being identified as the injured party, it is not corporal punishment being described, but financial restitution, since while the negligence of the bull owner is recognized, it is still the bull acting as the primary guilty party. If it be a slave, he shall pay one-third mina of silver. If a man hires a man to oversee his farm and to furnish him the seed grain and entrust him with oxen and contract him to cultivate his field, and that man steals either the seed or the crop and it be found in his possession, they shall cut off his fingers. Note that, and it be found in his possession. Many laws are ambiguous on this, but it seems pretty clear that in general, absolute proof such as being caught in the act was required for the harshest punishments. Indeed, it seems that evidentiary standards may have been fairly high in Babylonian courts. 
If he take the seed grain and overwork the oxen, he shall restore the quantity of grain which was hoed. If he rents out the oxen of the man on hire, or steals the seed grain and there be no crop in the field, they shall call that man to account, and he shall measure out sixty gur of grain per ten gan, or about three thousand liters per hectare. Remember that the highest recorded yields from the most fertile fields in Lagash about 500 years before this code is around 2,500 liters per hectare. So this is definitely punitive. If he is not able to meet his obligation, they shall have him dragged around that field by the cattle. Now, is this until death or just until the lesson is learned? It isn't completely clear, but it would certainly have been a clear lesson to anyone watching. If a man hire a field laborer, he shall pay him eight gur of grain per year. Now, estimates for calorie requirements for an average adult range from about 350 to 600 liters of barley per person per year. 8 gur is around 2,400 liters, so enough for a family of 4 at the upper limit or just under 7 at the lower end. So field laboring, while difficult, would not have been starvation labor, at least if the farmer was paying according to Hammurabi's mandated wages. If a man hire an ox driver, he shall pay him 6 gur of grain per year. This is 1,800 liters, though oxen would only be driven part of the year, so the annual salary is a bit lower to compensate for this. If a man steals a seed plow in the field, he shall pay five shekels of silver to the owner. If a man steals a standard plow or harrow, he shall pay three shekels of silver. There were multiple sorts of plows, and I'm not 100% sure I understand all of them, but the seeding plow was a fairly ingenious little machine that managed to deposit the barley seed at a precise and consistent depth of two fingers deep, without requiring anyone to stop or bend over. A regular plow was a simple wooden frame with a big metal tooth to break up the dirt, while a harrow is a flat frame with numerous teeth on the bottom that would re-flatten the ground. The seed plow, being both more complicated to build and in much higher demand during sowing time, has a higher penalty, though it isn't necessarily certain that the plow itself would have been more expensive to purchase. If a man hire a herdsman to pasture oxen or sheep, he shall pay him eight gur of grain per year, the same amount earned by a full-time agricultural laborer, indicating a level of parity between the agricultural and pastoral classes. If a man gives an ox or a sheep to a herdsman, and the second half of this law is too damaged to read, but the next provision appears to continue it with... If he loses an ox or sheep which was given to him, he shall restore to the owner ox for ox, sheep for sheep. If a shepherd, to whom oxen or sheep have been given to pasture, receive as his hire whatever was agreed upon and be satisfied, and he lets the cattle or sheep decrease in number or lessen the birth rate according to his contracts, he shall make good the birth rate and the produce. If a shepherd, to whom oxen or sheep have been given to pasture, has been dishonest, or has altered their price, or sold them, they shall call him to account, and he shall restore to their owner oxen or sheep tenfold to what he has stolen. 
If a visitation of God happens to a fold, or a lion kill, the shepherd shall declare himself innocent before the God, and the owner of the fold shall suffer damage. The visitation of a god is specifically a reference to a disease, possibly referencing the plague god Nurgle, though there were others who caused diseases as well. If a shepherd be careless, and he bring about an accident in the fold, the shepherd shall make good in cattle and sheep the loss through the accident which he has brought in the fold, and gives them to the owner. These all lay out the rights and responsibility of a hired shepherd in much the way other occupations are regulated. If a man hires an ox to thresh, 20 liters of grain is its hire. This is presumably per day. If he hires an ass to thresh, 10 liters of grain is its hire. If he hires a young goat to thresh, 1 liter of grain is its hire. Threshing is the process of separating the edible grains of the barley from the rest of the plant, in the absence of a machinery, by trampling. This would be followed by winnowing, or shoveling the trampled pile of grain and inedible plant into a filter or sieve to separate the two. If a man hire oxen, a wagon, and a driver, he shall pay 180 liters of grain per day. If a man hires a wagon only, he shall pay 40 liters of grain per day. This sounds like Hammurabi's equipment rental, but interestingly, he's specifying prices in grain, but it isn't necessarily to eat, since of course the wagon doesn't eat, and the wagon ox and driver together won't eat 180 liters in a day. This is straight-up compensation, but because the subject is a farmer, he pays in grain. If a man hires a laborer from the beginning of the year until the fifth month, he shall pay six grains of silver per day. From the sixth month until the end of the year, he shall pay five grains of silver per day. Commercial and state enterprises, however, could pay in silver, and so laborers were paid five or six grains per day. There are 180 grains in a shekel, so a five-grain worker would make a shekel in 36 days, while a six-grain worker would make it in exactly a month, 30 days. I can't say for certain, but my guess is that the wages are higher because the first six months, what we would call about April to September, are the hottest months, with summertime temperatures around Baghdad regularly reaching the low 40s. That's 110 and up in freedom units. It begins if a man hires an artisan. And it offers wages of four or five grains per day, though many of the wages are lost, and describes wages for weaver, linen worker, stonemason, boyer, smith, carpenter, leather worker, reed worker, and builder. If a man hire a boat, its hire is three grains of silver per day. If he hire a boat heading upstream, he shall pay two and a half grains of silver per day as its hire. Now, honestly, I suspect there's a translation error on this last one. This is either a different type of boat, or it's being hired to go downstream, not up. If a man hire a boat of 60 ger tonnage, he shall pay one-sixth of a shekel of silver as its hire per day. This is our half-cargo container capacity transport ship from earlier, probably a standard size for river transport.
If a man sell a male or female slave, and the slave has not completed his first month, and the Benu fever falls upon him, the purchaser shall return him to the seller, and he shall receive the money which he paid. Benu fever could be epilepsy, though translators don't seem to all agree. If a man sell a male or female slave, and there be a claim upon him, the seller shall be responsible for the claim. If a man purchase a male or female slave of a man in a foreign country, and if, when he comes back to his own land, the former owner of the male or female slave recognizes his male or female slave, if the male or female slave be a native of the land, he shall grant them their freedom without money. This applies only to Babylonians sold off into slavery in other countries purchased by a Babylonian, then returned to the city of Babylon. If they be natives of another land, the purchaser shall declare before God the money which he paid for them, and the owner of the male or female slave shall give to the merchant the money which he paid out, and the owner shall receive into his care the male or female slave. If a male slave say to his master, Thou art not my master, his master shall prove him to be his slave, and shall cut off his ear. And with that, we have all 282 laws of Hammurabi's code. We've covered quite a lot of ground in quite a lot of time, and there is still the epilogue to go. But I want to point out some things that were interesting for not being present in the code. Most of the laws dealing with slaves deal particularly with debt slaves, especially those regarding manumission. Because of this, it's widely assumed that only native-born debt slaves had any protections at all, and war captives or slaves bought from abroad had even fewer chances for freedom and protections than the already fairly miserable debt slaves. Note that while a wide variety of sexual crimes are listed, nowhere is rape itself listed as a crime. Indeed, for an adult married woman, being raped is a form of adultery and can get you killed. But for an unmarried, unattached woman, as few of them as there were, it appears to have not been considered criminal to rape them. There were other provisions in previous law codes that, that protected special classes of these women, such as widows, but for the Harimutu women, women dependent on no man, protections against sexual violence appear completely absent. There is almost no explicit discussion of the diversity of tribes and cultures that make up the empire, and there is a fair bit of equality before the law, generally speaking. The division between upper-class Awilu and middle-class Mushkenu may be rooted in a divide between Amorite ruling class and Akkadian commoners, but by Hammurabi's time, there has been quite a lot of intermixing between the two, and the extent to which Awilu represents a tribal identity, if indeed it ever did, is unclear. Note that these laws are almost completely secular. They mention temples and priests, but only in fairly mundane contexts like oath-swearing, thefts, and inheritance. Some have taken from this that Babylonian society was much less religious than commonly assumed, but remember that this is not actually a full set of laws, only the ones that Hammurabi decided to write down and place in public squares. And many more unwritten judicial precedents would have floated around in the Babylonian courts, quite like the British tradition of common law. 
Rules surrounding the temples themselves may well have been kept within the temples, not published for general audiences. Additionally, we already saw that the prologue was very concerned with the gods, and so too will be the epilogue. The epilogue follows the laws directly, and while it isn't a listing of judicial decisions, you should not take from that an idea that it was merely a rhetorical flourish. The entire code of laws, from start to finish, was part of his decree, and was considered important enough to carve into stone. These are the just decisions which Hammurabi, the able king, has established, and thereby has directed the land along the course of truth and the correct way of life. While in other places we are typically skeptical of kings personally doing things, like when digging canals, assuming that it is laborers doing it for them, with Hammurabi he really may have been personally responsible for all these decisions and their composition, though likely a large portion of them derive from prior precedent, even if he did render these particular judgments. We know he was unusually interested in judicial work, intervening in cases and frequently micromanaging his subordinates. While he is definitely puffing himself up a bit here in this epilogue, he was also almost certainly a very serious man with a deep interest in ethics, justice, and law. But what else did he think was important in a good king? I am Hammurabi, noble king. I have not been careless or negligent towards humankind, granted to my care by the god Enlil, and with whose shepherding the god Marduk charged me. I have sought for them peaceful places. I removed serious difficulties. I spread light over them. With the mighty weapons which the gods Zababa and Ishtar bestowed upon me, with the wisdom which the god Ea allotted to me, with the ability which the god Marduk gave to me, I annihilated enemies everywhere. I put an end to wars. I enhanced the well-being of the land. I made the people of all settlements lie in safe pastures. I did not tolerate anyone intimidating them. The great gods, having chosen me, I am indeed the shepherd who brings peace, whose scepter is just. My benevolent shade is spread over my city. I held the people of the lands of Sumer and Akkad safely on my lap. They prospered under my protective spirit. I maintained them in peace. With my skillful wisdom, I sheltered them. In order that the mighty not wrong the weak, to provide just ways for the waif and the widow, I have inscribed my precious pronouncements upon my stela and set it up before the statue of me, the king of justice, in the city of Babylon, the city which the gods Anu and Enlil have elevated, within the Asagil, the temple whose foundations are fixed as are heaven and earth, in order to render judgments of the land, to give the verdicts of the land, and to provide just ways for the wronged. I am the king preeminent among kings. My pronouncements are choice. My ability is unrivaled. By the command of the god Shamash, the great judge of heaven and earth, may my justice prevail in the land. By the order of the god Marduk, my lord, may my engraved image not be confronted by someone who would remove it. May my name always be remembered favorably in the Asagal temple which I love." 
Let any wronged man who has a lawsuit come before the statue of me, the king of justice, and let him have my inscribed stela read aloud to him. Thus may he hear my precious pronouncements, and let my stela reveal the lawsuit for him. May he examine the case, may he calm his troubled heart, and may he praise me, saying, Hammurabi, the Lord, who is like a father and begetter to his people, submitted himself to the command of the god Marduk, his lord, and achieved victory for the god Marduk everywhere. He gladdened the heart of the god Marduk, his lord, and he secured the eternal well-being of the people and provided just ways for the land. May he say thus, and may he pray for me with his whole heart before the gods Marduk, my lord, and Zarpanitu, my lady. May the protective spirits, the gods who enter the Asagal temple, and the very brickwork of the Asagal temple, make my daily portents auspicious before the gods Marduk, my lord, and Zarpanitu, my lady. Here we get a sense of the procedure involved. This paragraph here reveals to us the entire point of this giant stone block, and also tells us that even though most people were illiterate, there were some means provided for having the law read out to anyone who had a claim. Then, once the legal basis for the claim had been established, the petitioner was instructed to pray to Hammurabi, king of Babylon, and Marduk, god of Babylon. May any king who will appear in the land in the future, at any time, observe the pronouncements of justice that I inscribed upon my stela. May he not alter the judgments that I rendered and the verdicts that I gave, nor remove my engraved image. If that man has discernment, if he is capable of providing just ways for his land, may he heed the pronouncements I have inscribed upon my stela. May my stela reveal for him the traditions, the proper conduct, the judgments of the land that I have rendered, the judgments of the land I gave, and may he, too, provide just ways for all humankind in his his care. May he render their judgments. May he give their verdicts. May he eradicate the wicked and the evil from his land. May he enhance the well-being of his people. The law would, of course, evolve over time, but for at least a thousand years after his death, Hammurabi's code would be held up as a model of jurisprudence and actively studied by scribes and kings for over a thousand years by both Babylon and nearby kingdoms. Not only were the judgments sound, but though it's hard to tell in translation, the Akkadian used was clear, precise, and elegant, making the code attractive in both form and content. In terms of legacy, Hammurabi is almost certainly the most influential legislator in history. I am Hammurabi, king of justice, to whom the god Shamash has granted insight into the truth. My pronouncements are choice. My achievements are unrivaled. They are meaningless only to the fool, but to the wise they are praiseworthy. If that man, a future ruler, heeds my pronouncements which I have inscribed upon my stela, and does not reject my judgments, change my pronouncements, or alter my engraved image, then may the god Shamash lengthen his reign, just as he has done for me, the king of justice, and so may he shepherd his people with justice. But... Should that man not heed my pronouncements, which I have inscribed upon my stela, 
and should he slight my curses and not fear the curses of the gods, and thus overturn the judgments that I rendered, change my pronouncements, alter my engraved image, erase my inscribed name and inscribe his own name in its place, or should he, because of the fear of these curses, have someone else do so, that man, whether he is king, a lord, or a governor, or any person at all, May the great god Anu, father of the gods who has proclaimed my reign, deprive him of the sheen of royalty, smash his scepter, and curse his destiny. These sorts of curses, or protective magic spells, were common on major public inscriptions. But with the following, it allows us to very clearly get a sense of who the major gods are to the Babylonians and what their exact role is, since both hierarchy and role can change across time and place in Mesopotamia. May the god Enlil, the lord who determines destinies, whose utterances cannot be countermanded, who magnifies my kingship, incite against him even in his own residence disorder that cannot be quelled, and a rebellion that will result in his obliteration. May he cast as his fate a reign of groaning, of few days, of years of famine, of darkness without illumination, and of sudden death. May he declare with his venerable speech the obliteration of his city, the dispersion of his people, the supplanting of his dynasty, and the blotting out of his name and his memory from the land. May the goddess Ninlil, the great mother, whose utterance is honored in the Ekher temple, the mistress who makes my portents auspicious, denounce his case before the god Enlil at the place of litigation and verdict. May she induce the divine king Enlil to pronounce the destruction of his land, the obliteration of his people, and the spilling of his life force like water. May the god Ea, the great prince, whose destinies take precedence, the sage among the gods, all-knowing, who lengthens the days of my life, deprive him of all understanding and wisdom. May he lead him into confusion. May he dam up his rivers at the source. May he not allow any life-sustaining grain in his land. May the god Shamash, the great judge of heaven and earth, who provides just ways for all living creatures, the Lord, my trust, overturn his kingship. May he not render his judgments. May he confuse his path and undermine the morale of his army. When divination is performed for him, may he provide an inauspicious omen portending the uprooting of the foundations of his kingship and the obliteration of his land. May the malevolent word of the god Shamash swiftly overtake him. May he uproot him from among the living above and make his ghost thirst for water below in the netherworld. May the god Sin, my creator, whose oracular decision prevails among the gods, deprive him of the crown and throne of kingship, and impose upon him an onerous punishment, a great penalty for him, which will not depart from his body. May he conclude every day, month, and year of his reign with groaning and mourning. May he unveil before him a contender for the kingship. May he decree for him a life that is no better than death. May the god Adad, lord of abundance, the canal inspector of heaven and earth, my helper, deprive him of the benefits of rain from heaven and flood from the springs. May he obliterate his land through destitution and famine. May he roar fiercely over his city, and may he turn his land into the abandoned hills left by the flood.
May the god Zababa, the great warrior, the firstborn son of the Ekur Temple, who travels at my right side, smash his weapon upon the field of battle. May he turn day into night for him and make his enemy triumph over him. May the goddess Ishtar, mistress of battle and warfare, who bears my weapon, my benevolent protective spirit, who loves my reign, curse his kingship with her angry heart and her great fury. May she turn his auspicious omens into calamities. May she smash his weapon on the field of war and battle, plunge him into confusion and rebellion, strike down his warriors, drench the earth with their blood, make a heap of the corpses of his soldiers upon the plain, and may she show his soldiers no mercy. As for him, may she deliver him into the hands of his enemies, and may she lead him bound captive to the land of his enemy. May the god Nurgle, the mighty one among the gods, the irresistible onslaught, who enables me to achieve my triumphs, burn his people with his great overpowering weapon like a raging fire in a reed thicket. May he have him beaten with his mighty weapon and shatter his limbs like those of a clay figure. May the goddess Nintu, august mistress of the lands, the mother, my creator, deprive him of an heir and give him no offspring. May she not allow a human child to be born anywhere among his people. May the goddess Ninkarak, daughter of the god Anu, who promotes my cause in the Ekur temple, cause a grievous malady to break out among his limbs, an evil demonic disease, a serious carbuncle which cannot be soothed, which a physician cannot diagnose, which he cannot ease with bandages, which like the bite of death, cannot be expunged. May he bewail his lost virility until his life comes to an end. May the great gods of heaven and earth, all the Anunnaki deities together, the protective spirit of his temple, the very brickwork of the Ababar temple, curse that one his seed, his land, his troops, his people, and his army with a terrible curse. May the god Enlil, whose command cannot be countermanded, curse him, and may these curses swiftly overtake him. And with this, the Law Code of Hammurabi comes to an end. This has been very long, and I hope to never do it again. If you're new to the show, this is the final episode of a now nine-part series on Hammurabi and his empire, if you want to go back in the archives and listen. But we'll also be moving forward from here into the late Old Babylonian period, with the reign of Hammurabi's son and successor, Samsu Ilana. There is quite a lot of history, myth, and daily life left in Mesopotamia, so you can expect many more stories for many more weeks. Episodes come out each Wednesday at noon, so feel free to subscribe to Oldest Stories on YouTube or on your favorite podcast app. Next week, we will see this Babylonian empire that we have spent two months building up, reshaped by the beginning of a new historical era. So join us next time as the largest rebellion since Naram-Sin engulfs the empire and leaves us with a smaller, more concentrated, but still very prosperous Babylon. Thank you for listening.